Hear now the words from Scripture that come today from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. When I was a child in the Presbyterian Church, we were not allowed to take communion until we had gone through confirmation. Confirmation for me occurred at about the age of 11 or 12. And for a couple of years thereafter, my memory of communion uh, has two primary um, events, or there are two primary times that I remembered communion. Entering the sanctuary from the narthex and seeing the normally bare communion table draped with white linen cloths with the cross pointed so it looked like two mountains in the distance. Or we might say today it would be like snow-covered mosques the way it would look. But if when I entered the sanctuary from the back with my family and saw that sight, it left me with the sinking feeling that the service was going to be a lot longer. (laughs) The other more positive experience came when we would have communion on summer days. We only had communion four times a year in those days. But when we had it in the summer in Memphis, it was hot. And I could feel the cool of the grape juice go down my esophagus all the way, providing relief. And even as I describe this memory today, I can feel the Welch's. Now, years later, when I became a minister, I realized that I was not quite as sacramentally steeped as students from other traditions, Roman Catholic, Episcopal, and Lutheran especially. And then as I became a minister, I realized that many of my Presbyterian peers my age had a little more training in the sacraments than I had chosen to have. In seminary, I devoured courses in Bible and theology, and I figured I could pick up the worship and the pastoral care and the church administration by the seat of my pants once I was out in the parish. Thus, during my formal training, I never studied much about baptism or the Lord's Supper except the basics of Presbyterian belief. 
But early in my ministry, in the first ten years, I have key memories of communion services that were highly meaningful. A man in his late 20s, whose parents had joined the church I was serving in Houston, was diagnosed with cancer. It spread quickly. Treatment at MD Anderson Hospital provided little relief or hope. When I was visiting him in the hospital, he asked me if he could join the church as his parents had. A day later, an elder from the church and I went to his bedside, received his profession of faith, administered the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to him and partook of bread and wine together at his first and only communion. The same scene was repeated a few years later when I had moved to Iowa and an elderly farmer whose large multi-generation family had been part of the church for decades, kind of in and out, and we didn't see them too much, but he too was facing that time when he would cross the River Jordan. And unlike everyone else in his family, he had never been baptized never joined the church, and he asked if he could. On this occasion, there were almost a dozen members of our session who traveled out to his farm. He sat on the couch with his back to the picture window. We could see the new corn beginning to come up. And he had a couple of his kids there and several of his grandkids there. There were probably 20 people in the room. And again, we witnessed as both the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of of the Lord's Supper were given. And they sealed in a poignant way the grace of God that had been at work in him and on him for four score years. Over the years... As the Presbyterian Church and other denominations similar to ours have become more liturgical in our worship, my own appreciation for communion couldn't help but grow. Even if my understanding sometimes lags behind the biblical study and preaching and teaching on which I normally focus. Several months ago, a member of this church told me that sometimes she feels when we have communion that it's kind of an add-on, an element of worship we try to get to, as, get, get to and through as efficiently as possible, trying to meet our rarely attained goal of being out by noon. The more I thought about what she said, the more I think that it has merit. So I've recently tried to make a better, more direct connection between communion and the other elements of the service on those days in which we celebrate this sacrament. But in today's service, this flow is smooth because the entire order of worship is the communion liturgy. And because the sermon is based on an anthem, we've just heard, whose words are a communion anthem by George Herbert, the 17th century British poet with whom we have been spending the bulk of Lent.
The poem by which our hearts have been stolen in this anthem, this prayer of confession, is entitled, Love Bade Me Welcome. Some consider it Herbert's best poem. In this poem, a reluctant sinner is invited to love's table to dine without conditions, but fully accepted as a guest without the least bit of snobbery that often comes when we are invited to a wonderful dinner. The poem opens with a narrative. Love bade me welcome, the poet writes, concerning this invitation to the banquet. But the poet is hesitant to accept this invitation. My soul drew back, he writes, guilty of dust and sin. Yet love persists with the invitation. Do you lack anything, she asks. The eloquent poet immediately responds, responds a guest worthy to be here. Love then responds with equal wit, you shall be he. You shall be that guest who is worthy to be at this table. Knocked off his mental adroitness, the poet then says, I, the unkind, the ungrateful, I cannot even look on thee. But again, love is quick-witted. Who made the eyes but I, she says, in a sophisticated pun. But I have marred them, says the poet. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, asks love, know you not who bore the blame. With this line, the poet has introduced the traditional Christian doctrine of the atonement, the meaning of the death of Christ. The figure of love representing God has said, I have taken your dust and sin. I have taken your lack of kindness and gratitude. I have taken these unto myself so that you, in fact, are made worthy because of me, because of my death on the cross. You are made worthy to be at this feast. The poet is overwhelmed. My dear, he says, then I will serve. But love simply says, you must sit down and taste my meat. And the poet responds, so I did sit and eat. Though I will be committing the unavoidable misdemeanor of turning this beautiful poetry into prose, I want to point briefly to three aspects of this poem that have struck me. And I hope that as I do, at least one of them will enrich your experience of the Lord's Supper. And if we're lucky, all three of them will. First, this poem depicts an invitation we cannot refuse. 
Notice the commanding words, often in the imperative voice that the character called love uses. You shall be the worthy guest. Who made the eyes but I? Know you not who bore the blame? You must sit down. Literary critic Stanley Fish describes the poet as being killed with kindness. This is an invitation that we cannot refuse. Second, this poem depicts a presence that we can barely define. When I did study liturgy in seminary, what little I did, I was reminded of what I, left, what I more or less already knew, that among all the Christian denominations there are differences concerning our belief as to how Christ is present to us through the bread and wine. Catholics believe the bread and wine is changed into the body and blood of Christ so that those who come forward actually partake of the body and blood. Taste my meat, says Herbert. On the other end of the spectrum, many Protestants believe that in the Lord's Supper, Christ is present to us symbolically as we reenact something that he did and told us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. We Presbyterians are right in the middle of this spectrum, as we are in the middle of so many things on the spectrum of Christianity. While we do not believe that the bread and, line, bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, we believe that the body and blood are present to our faith, just like the bread and wine are present to our senses of taste and touch and smell and sight and even hearing as the bread is broken. Thus the grape juice making its way down my adolescent gullet was still Welch's, but the feeling, the feeling was the presence of Christ within me. The 16th century reformer John Calvin, from whom all things Presbyterian flow, writes of this presence. We are told to eat. And that means the other thing we cannot see, the thing that commands us to eat, becomes one substance with us. The whole force of the sacrament, he says, lies in the word given for you, shed for you, those who take in the language of this sign, truly take in the thing signified, Christ himself. It's hard to explain this presence, this presence of God in bread and wine, but it is a presence, a real presence, a presence that we can barely define but a presence without which we can barely live. Third, and perhaps even more powerful than an invitation we cannot refuse or a presence we cannot define, is a healing we never thought we would experience. In the Wall Street Journal, David Lehman, who's a poet that teaches at the New School in New York, writes, 
George Herbert's deity is an unflailingly good host. And here, says Lehman, we cannot overlook the religious meaning of host as the body of Christ and the ritual of the Eucharist. Love says, in effect, eat me, partake of me, take me in, and be whole. In this poem of communion, love defeats not sin, but guilt. Love overlooks shame. Love is a feast, and even the unkind, the ungrateful, are invited to partake. Lehman concludes his essay, Let it also be noted that more than a few former atheists have found their way back to God's good news through the poetry of George Herbert. Last weekend, several of us heard through the Reformed Institute a theologian named Suzanne McDonald who teaches at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, which is a seminary of the Reformed Church in America. She, she shared with the group that she was raised in Australia of parents who were atheists and had no, no belief whatever um, about God. And it was obvious from her description of them that she remains very close to them. She said that she came to Christian belief in college as a literature major reading George Herbert's poetry. What Christ offers to us at this table, to all of us who accept the invitation to dine, is not to undo anything that we have done and not to undo anything that's been done to us as attractive, as wonderful as that would be. But what Christ offers at this table is to defeat the guilt, to overcome the shame that comes with that which we have done and comes with that which has been done to us. It is that which is overcome. It is that which is removed. Love defeats not sin but guilt. Love overlooks shame. It is a healing we never thought we would experience. And it is available here for us at this table today.